0: You'll start making your way back to your seats, and as you do, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We are coming towards the tail end of our series that we're in the midst of, a series entitled This is the Church, and we're going to spend this week and the next couple weeks as we wrap up just taking some time to think through the responsibilities of a church member, uh, the responsibilities of a church member. So, as as you guys know, in our constitution, it talks about uh, it talks about the fact that we are Jesus Christ ruled. We're elder led. We're deacon served. And the last thing that it says is that we are congregation affirmed, which means you play a part in this thing we call church. Uh, and so, we're going to spend the next uh, this week and the next two weeks just focusing a little bit on on. What are your responsibilities? And then, just to give you an idea of where we're going, uh, and it, they're, they're somewhat parallel in that they'll build off of one another. So after we finish this series entitled, This is the Church, we're going to spend seven weeks looking at the seven churches in Revelation uh, and use that kind of as its own series, but to build on this series a little bit as we can just continue thinking through a faithful church. Uh, we've got some plans for after that, but we'll wait and keep you in anticipation until then. But I want to look this morning at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. This is a text that's very familiar to us. We reference it quite frequently, but we're going to spend the morning diving into it. So hopefully you're there by now and I invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34 and reading through verse 40. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, when the Pharisees heard... That he had silenced the Sadducees, that's Jesus. When Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they came together and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Heavenly Father, as we consider the two greatest commands, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to I start looking at what our roles are as just church members. And consider, for just a few minutes, the foundation of church life. The foundation of church life. You now, I'm not a big TV and movie guy. Uh, a lot of that's just because of time constraints in my life, and a lot of it's just because there's only so many times you can watch the same thing, in a different way. TV's kind of boring, but one thing I do get down on is the Marvel movies. Yeah, I mean that—that that was an amen right there. And—and and I say this because I believe it. One of—one uh, of the best is the Infinity War. Now there was a somewhat comedic scene in that. In that movie, The Infinity War. So, if you're not a Marvel fan, you know, not every illustration is going to hit everybody, but I think it's a good one. And so, there's a comedic scene that quickly became an internet meme sensation. So, T'Challa, or the Black Panther, is talking with his general, uh, Okoye, and she's joking with him about welcoming outsiders into Wakanda. Because they're about to welcome some of the Avengers into Wakanda for the first time. It's a really funny scene where You know, T'Challa's like, well, what did you expect if we weren't going to invite him here? And she says, well, I don't know, maybe a Starbucks or the Olympics. But they're about to welcome them. And as the Avengers arrive, James Rhodes, he's the guy who's known as War Machine, he's talking with Bruce Banner, right, or the Incredible Hulk. And Bruce is worried about not knowing the customs of Wakanda as they're getting ready to get off their jet. So he asks Rhodes, as they're walking out of the jet, he says, hey, you know, should I bow when I meet T'Challa? And Rhodes responds, well, yeah, he's a king. And so as Banner approaches, everybody else is just shaking his hand. He bows, and Rhodes, with a smile on his face, immediately whispers, what are you you doing? And graciously, T'Challa responds to him. This is where the meme comes from. We don't do that here. Now, it's a humorous interaction, but it actually teaches us something. It reminds us that in different places, in different environments, depending on on who you are and where you are, there are different expectations of what is and is not appropriate behavior. And these expectations, they're not defined by you. They're defined by the community that you're walking into. There are actions and requirements that define a person as someone who is inside the community and someone who's outside of the community. And when someone from outside of the community comes inside the community, these are often expectations, like in this interaction in Infinity War, that have to be communicated. They have to be taught. And once they're taught, they're expected to be received and followed. And, and this example from Wakanda, I remember when I first saw it, it actually immediately made my mind start thinking about the church, because the church, too, has expectations There are expectations that define those who are in the community, but they can also define those who are outside of the community. And in the text we just read, Jesus himself defines not only the basic characteristics of the church, but also the expectations for everyone who is a part of it. And so as I was thinking through and praying through, you know, when, we were, when I was mapping out this series, how to address for this, this last part of the series, the role and the responsibility of church members, I was reminded that before we can build on what it is that is your role and responsibility, we have to lay a solid foundation on which we stand. And so Matthew 22, verses 30 through 40, the text that we just read, it lays for us a foundation of what it means to be a Christian and the expectation of anyone who is in the family of God. So basically what I'm getting at is anything that we talk about after this is built on this twofold foundation of loving God and loving people. So, so as we dive into this text, let me, let me offer you a little background here because it will set the stage for our conversation. So We're in Matthew 22, Jesus is in somewhat of the height of his ministry. He's been healing, he's been performing miracles, he's engaging with others, he's teaching in the synagogue, and at this point, Jesus has drawn a lot of attention uh, from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And just to put it plainly, they're not a fan of Jesus. The, The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious people of the day, they are not a fan of Jesus because Jesus is teaching with an authority they don't have. Jesus is doing things that they can't do. Jesus is developing a following that challenges their authority. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders feel as if Jesus is a threat to their power. We talked about this last week. There's nothing new under the sun. It is not a new thing for church leaders to fight for their power at the expense of Jesus. But, but these leaders, they want to trap Jesus because they see him as a threat. And so we see this after Jesus finishes teaching parables in Matthew chapter 21. So leading up to our text in Matthew 21, Jesus just got, got through teaching some parables. And it says in verses 45 and 46 of, of 21 that when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew that he was speaking about them. And although they were looking for a way to arrest him, They feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. So they want Jesus gone. They want to put him in jail. They want to put him on trial. They want to get rid of him. So they begin to ask him questions in order to try to trip him up so that they can throw him in jail with what they believe would be just cause. And so in Matthew 22, verse 15, they start asking him questions, and they begin in an interesting way. They begin by asking him about taxes, of all things, but here's why they ask him about taxes. They, they want to be able to get, to get him tripped up in regards to Rome. They want him to say something so that they can go to Roman officials and say that Jesus is trying to overthrow your authority. You need to get rid of him. It's interesting how quickly people are willing to make an enemy their friend in order to serve their purpose. Because the Jewish people were not a fan of Rome. But they disliked Jesus even more. And so they're questioning about taxes. We shouldn't be surprised. It doesn't trip Jesus up. So when they can't get him politically, they try to get him with theology. They try to get him to say something different than what they believe about God or what they think a good Jew should believe. Now, I wish I had time to dive into this because I don't. But there's something for us in there. Don't get confused about the fact that the enemy won't just attack you where you're weak. He will attack you where you're strong. If anybody knew the best theology, it's Jesus. I mean, that's exactly what happened in the temptation with Jesus in Matthew 4, isn't it? Jesus was hungry. He was weak. He'd been fasting for 40 days. And so what is, where does Satan go first? His weakness. But he can't get him with his weakness. And so then where does he go? Well, doesn't the Bible say... Brothers and sisters, don't think that Satan will only attack you where you're weak. Sometimes he goes where you think you're strong. Mm, We don't got time. So the Sadducees asked him about the resurrection. So they go after theology. They start asking about the resurrection from the dead. They, they want to know how marriage is going to work in the resurrection of all things. And they bring up a case of, well, doesn't the law say that if the husband dies, then somebody else from the family can marry in order to kind of redeem and, and honor that person. And so they say, well, well, when the resurrection happens, who's married to who? And Jesus gets them. He said, well, there is going to be no marriage in the resurrection. But the ironic thing is the Sadducees who are acting about, asking about the res- resurrection didn't even believe in a resurrection from the dead. They just wanted to trip Jesus up. And once again, no surprise to us, their plot fails. Now, now keep in mind, and this is significant, while all this is going on, crowds are listening. And it's having the opposite effect that the religious leaders want because Matthew 23, 33 tells us, and when the crowds heard this, They were astonished at his teaching. We'll come back to that towards the end. But then we come to our text. They're still trying to get Jesus. And this time it's not the Sadducees, but it's the Pharisees. And they question Jesus. And and so look at verses 34 through 46. Again, it says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Now, now we got to understand what's going on here because for the Pharisees, the law is everything. It's everything. That's the last one. They all fell off, okay? No more pages are going to fall. The law was everything. These are the the individuals who were charged with interpreting the law. They were charged with reading the law. They were charged with explaining the law. They knew what the law was. The law was the terms of the covenant with God that was established between God and Moses that, listen, the law defined who the people of God were and how they lived. We have to remember, that's what what the law is about. It's defining the terms of a covenant That was made between God and Moses. And in that covenant, God said, listen, I will be your God. And God had an end of the bargain to hold up. God's side of the bargain was that he would bless them, he would multiply them, he would care for them, but most significant, that God would walk with them. That's Leviticus 26, 12. God says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. But on the other end, the people of God had a responsibility To hold up as well. They had an end of the bargain too. And their job was to keep the laws. Their job was to keep the covenant. So in essence. Stick with me. What the Pharisees are asking Jesus. When they say which command in the law is greatest. They are asking him. What is the defining mark. Of the people of God. What is the thing. That sets the people of God apart. From everybody else. What does obedience to to the commands of God entail at the highest level. Again, what is it that makes God's people God's people? And this is what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend On these two commands. So, the people of God, at the most basic level, are defined by two things. And these are the two things that we're going to talk about this morning. First, the people of God, just to be clear, that's you and me in this room who have placed our faith in Jesus. The first thing that we are defined by, the greatest thing that we are defined by, is a love for God. It's a love for God. Now, just got to throw this warning out there before you start to tune out and say, again, we want to talk about love God and love people again. Yes, we are. That's exactly what we're going to do because we need to hear it. We need to be reminded regularly of what it is that defines us as Christians because we're tempted to forget. We're tempted to start to add things in there that don't take the place of prominence as these two greatest commands. So we are first and foremost defined by a love for God. And I know when we talk about a love for God, often that can just be a vague concept. So what I want to do is I want to answer three questions to help us understand what Jesus means when he talks about a love for God. And and so so here's the first question. What does it mean to actually love God? What does it mean to love God? You could answer this question a couple of different ways, but I think the easiest way to answer it is to say this, that to love God, is to see God as the greatest treasure. To love God is to see God as the greatest treasure. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, he compares the kingdom of heaven, right? The place where God dwells to a treasure and to a pearl. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and he reburied it. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has so that he can buy that field. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. It is a willingness to sacrifice everything because Jesus is greater. Because God is greater. Loving God means seeing God as the greatest thing of all, the greatest thing in all of existence and wanting him more than anything else. Now, we got to do some work here because for some of us, I think if we're honest, we fail to see God as the greatest treasure, but we think we see Him as the greatest treasure. And, And here's why I say that, because often we treat God like the greatest tool to get the greatest treasure. See, we often want the blessings of God more than we want God Himself. And we see obedience to God as a means of getting what we want. And in Matthew 13, God is the treasure. God is the pearl of value. Being and walking in relationship with him is so precious that in in Jesus' example, the people who found the treasure and found the, the pearl, they're willing to give up everything else just to have God. We should be willing to give up our dreams and our ambitions. We should be willing to give up our resources and our comfort. There was a a French monk named Bernard of Clairvaux. That's a great name for a monk, Bernard of Clairvaux. He lived about 1090 to 1153, so he lived a while ago. But he became known for his sermons on, on loving God. And so later in his life, Bernard received a request from a cardinal in Rome. And he was asked to write an essay on why and how much we should love God. It's an interesting thing to write on. So he was asked to to write an essay on why and how much we should love God. And he begins his essay by just saying this. You want me to tell you why God is to be loved and how much? I answer, the reason for loving God is God himself. And the measure of love that is due to him is an immeasurable love. But what was most helpful in that essay, at least in my opinion, is how Bernard explains our progression of growing to love God. And he understands loving God as a four-stage progression. And everybody starts in stage one, and the goal is to get to stage three and four. But he begins, and he said, see, when people love, this is where we start off. We start off loving ourselves for ourselves' sake. That's Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Loving ourselves for ourselves' sake. That's where they, they started when they sinned. We want what we want. We, we think that we know what's best. We're going to try to love ourselves for the good of ourselves. But then, that's the first stage. But some people, then they move to the second stage. And my fear is that this is where most Christians stop and they don't realize it. And the second stage is that we love God, but for our own sake. We love God because we think God can get us something. He can do something. He can provide the things that we really want that we secretly know we can't obtain on our own. But if we just love God enough, he'll give it to us. But see, then you move to the third step, and this is the third and fourth. This is where we, we want to get to as Christians. He said this third stage of love is loving God for God's sake. Loving God because God is worthy. And what Bernard is getting at, I'll tell you the fourth step. Some of you, are, we're not going to talk about the fourth, but the fourth, he says, is, and this I think is the hardest, he says the, the pinnacle of love is getting to the place where we love ourselves for God's sake. But what Bernard is getting at is that people will confuse a love for God with a love for themselves, meaning they only try to love God because they love themselves and think that God is a means to an end rather than the end himself. So let let me give you a test to see if you're there. Nobody's going to have to raise their hand, okay? This isn't a... Throw yourself out there, Tess. But how many times have you been frustrated with God because you loved him and you thought he wasn't doing what what you wanted him to do? God, I've been obedient. I've been obedient. I've done what you've said. I've read my Bible. I've told people about you. I've been in this place myself. I've (laughs) preached these sermons. I've fought for this church. I'm doing what you've called me to do, but you're not doing what I want. Now, maybe it's just me and y'all are too holy for me, but I've prayed that prayer. I I I have sat before God and said, God, you are not doing what I want, but I've done what you've asked. But what does it mean to love God? It means to see God as the greatest treasure, to desire him above all else and be willing to sacrifice everything that we may gain. For him. A better prayer would be, God, I've been obedient. I've done what you've asked me to do. I've done the hard stuff. I've fought to be faithful. And you haven't given me what I want. But I get you. And that's enough. But here's the next question that we have to to answer. Not only what does it mean to love God, but what what does a love for God look like? What does it actually look like to love God? How do we know if we are loving God well? Because we all want to love God well, amen? Like, we should want to love God well, and we've got to ask the question, okay, what does it look like to love God? And the answer to that question is simple yet so profound. Obedience. Obedience. A love for God is not primarily that you say you love God. A love for God is not primarily that you can spout off all the right doctrines or at least the ones you think are right. A love for God is most clearly seen in obedience. And the Bible tells us this over and over. 1 John 2, 4. The one who says, "I, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Then a few verses later in John 14, 21, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. It doesn't get much clearer than that. 1 John 5, 3, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his command is not a burden. There are so many more, but the idea is that a genuine love for God is more than what we profess with our mouths. It's not less than what we profess with our mouths, but it's more than what we profess with our mouths. It's evident in every decision that we make, will we be obedient to God when it comes to our jobs? Will we be obedient to God when it comes to our family? Will we be obedient to God when it comes to our money? Will we be obedient to God when it comes to our entertainment. So so let's get real practical. All right, If, If God says love the people of God, you show your love for God by loving the people of God. If God says care about the poor and the marginalized, you show you love God by caring for the poor and the marginalized. If God says be holy above all else, then you show your love for God by pursuing holiness above all else. If God says you fill in the blank, You show your love for God by doing fill in the blank. We show our love for God in every act of obedience. And this, in essence, is what Jesus is getting at when he says in verse 37, he said to him, love the Lord your God, what? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And what Jesus is not trying to do is show three different ways in which you can love God. Some people interpret it. They try to break down those three things, and here's what he's getting at. But when those three things are put together in Scripture, typically what God is trying to communicate is with the whole of who you are. The whole of who you are. Your heart, your mind, and your soul. With all that you are, be obedient to God. Not just your thoughts. Not just your affections. Not just your doctrine. doctrine, And not just your actions. But love God completely with all of it. There's a theologian, Dr. R.T. France. I think he was helpful for me in understanding what Jesus means when he lists those three things. And he says, the three nouns together simply indicate to us the full nature of a man. And, and ultimately, he says, he's communicating fundamental loyalty. Not just a superficial allegiance. Not just obeying God when it's convenient. But obeying God all the time because you love and I want to I press in here just a little bit because I want to make sure we get this. There has been a dangerous shift that has taken place in our understanding of Christianity in the modern world. It's not just America, in the modern world today. Because if I ask you, are you a Christian, the first thing that most of you will think about is what you believe that makes you a Christian. But for most of Christian history, if someone asked those brothers and sisters, are you a Christian? The first thing they would have thought about was the practice of their life. Am I a Christian? Well, let me think. Am I doing the things that God has called me to do? Like, we think in terms of obedience and, and obedience, or in belief. And belief is important. Please hear me. Like, like we, we come into the family of faith through faith and repentance. But the measure of a faithful Christian is not what you think. It's what you do. We've made Christianity solely a belief, and to be honest, a belief that many can claim to hold with no life transformation. But Christianity, throughout its existence, has been primarily defined by a practice of life. That's why we weren't called Christians until Antioch. Y'all have heard this? What were the Christians called? They were called people of the way. Why? Because when people looked at them, they didn't believe that way. They lived that way a particular way that set them apart from the rest of the world. So nobody had to explain their doctrine to be understood as a Christian. They looked at them and said there's something about the way they live that is just different from everybody else. Now again, I want to be crystal clear. I am not saying that belief is not important. It is. I'm not saying that you can just live a certain way and do good things and be saved. We'll talk about that in just a second. I am saying that the evidence of your faith, what defined Christianity for centuries, was a way of living that strived to be obedient to God in everything. So if God said, give to the poor, and somebody asked, are you a Christian? They would have said, am I giving to the poor? Not do I believe in limited atonement. I'm going to move on. But here's the last question that, that we have to answer if we're going to understand a love for God well. How are we able to love God? Because let's be frank, that's a weighty call, is it not? To be obedient to God. How in the world do we do this? Because what I don't want to happen is for, for you listening to think, all right, I know I get it. I gotta love God. I'm not doing a good job at that right now. So I just gotta try harder. Listen, by nature, we are bent towards hating God. Not like a a dislike, not a kind of apathy. We are by nature bent towards hating God. Jeremiah 17 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? No one had to teach you how to sin. No one had to teach you selfishness. No one had to teach me selfishness or pride or arrogance. Those are things that that came within us. I was talking to a brother just yesterday, and we were counting our kids, right? We're like, man, we're struggling because they're sinning. And it's like, yeah, they're supposed to be sinning. They're supposed to be sinning. They are by nature bent towards hating God. And our sin chains us to our hatred of God. Our hearts are dead. So what we need is not better behavior. What we need is a new heart. And the amazing thing about our God is that's the very thing he promised. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, 19. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And so how does God do that? God conquers that which enslaves us. God conquers sin. He conquers death. He conquers the world. And he doesn't do it with a sword and a shield. He doesn't do it with an army. He does it with a lamb that was slain. The one who came and was not enslaved to sin. His heart was a heart of flesh that beat for the things of God. He was obedient to God even to the point of death. And Jesus Christ died on a cross and when he died, our sin died. The curse was killed. When he died, death died. But then he rose from the dead three days later, and that's why new life is available. God made a way for the fulfillment of the promise way back in Ezekiel through Jesus, that through faith and repentance, our hearts of stone can be made hearts of flesh, and they can now beat in love with God. So we can love God when we know and understand that he has first loved us. That's what John says in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. A, a love for God does not start with your power and your effort. It does not start with your intentions. A love for God begins when we recognize and believe in God's love for us seen in the work of Jesus Christ. And when we believe the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us and the Spirit empowers us to love God. And by the Spirit's power, we can do what Paul calls Christians to do in Colossians and be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. I'm not saying you don't have to work at it. I'm not saying you don't play a part in it. But what I am saying is you don't have the power on your own. But by the Spirit's power, we can pursue obedience in ways that we never could. And let's be honest, we will falter and we will fail. But God still loves us. And that should drive us to love him all the more. So what we do here in this church, what is the foundation of church life? It's first and foremost, above all else, a love for God. But there's a second part to the foundation. It's a love for people. Jesus says in verse 39, The second is like it. The second command, right? The greatest, love the Lord your God. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's interesting about this statement is that for the Jews listening to Jesus as he says, love your neighbor, most of them would have immediately associated neighbor with other Jews. And they were right to do so. Because throughout the Old Testament, there was a distinction between the people of God, those who were considered neighbors, and those who were not the people of God considered foreigners. These were, there are were laws that speak to how you interact with a neighbor, how you interact with a foreigner. And in the Old Testament, your neighbor was a Jew. So they weren't necessarily wrong in thinking about Jews only. But, but let's, let's take that for just a moment and apply that to the church. The foundation of church life is a love for those who are in this body with us. And we're going to flesh this out a little bit more in the final two messages to come. But let me just say this for now. This shouldn't be new to any of us. Like, please hear me. And I, I hope you know my heart. Like, we are living in a day and age where a constant theme among many. I just call it what it is. It's mostly my generation and younger I don't even know what generation I'm technically in, but like roughly my age and younger. But one of the common themes today is I love Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with this church. I love Jesus and what he's done for me, but I can't stand the people of God. And and hear me, I have sympathy for that statement. I really do. Because let's face it, the church is messy, but it's messy because we're in it. Like The people that make up the church are messy. And the church, we got to own it. The church has made a lot of mistakes. We continue to make a lot of mistakes. This church will probably make mistakes. And a lot has been done in the name of the church by those who actually were never a part of the church. And while all that is true, we have to remember that Jesus loves his church. He loves it when it's acting right. He loves it when it's wiling out. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And please hear me, and I want to say this in love, there is no category of faith that allows for fellowship with God without a fellowship with his people. Americans think that's true, but the Bible doesn't. Like, Like You cannot have faith with God. And not have faith with his people. And you know the example I like to use. It's Ruth, right? It's Ruth. There's a reason that before, God said your, before Ruth said, your God will be my God, she said, your people will be my people. Because she knew she couldn't have the covenantal God without the covenantal family. There is no category of faith that allows for fellowship with God without a fellowship with his people. And listen, I'm not saying it's always easy to love the church. I say that as a pastor of a church. It is not always easy to love the church. But you know what the secret is? That's why the greatest commandment is not love people. The greatest commandment is love God. And out of that flows a love for people. Because when we love God for what he has done for us, as the individual, it reminds us that we aren't the neatest person either. It's easy to look at a church and see it's faults. It's not as easy to look at ourselves and see ours. But the gospel reminds us that God loved us even when we were messy. I mean, Let's call it what it is. Some of us in this room, we say, folks and we still messy. And God loves us even though we don't have it all together. Right? Romans 5.8. But God proves his love in that while we were still sinners, we weren't righteous. We weren't worthy. We weren't honorable. While we were still sinners. Christ died for us the gospel forces us to reckon with the fact that love is not contingent on being perfect the church is not yet perfect and our love for the church cannot depend on it being perfect our love for all people begins with a love for the church and and, and I want you to hear me say that I didn't say that unintentionally our love for all people has to begin with a love for the church like, what I'm saying is, like, you can't love the world out there if you don't love the people in here. Like, we on the same team. We fighting for the same holiness. We're supposed to have each other's backs, right? The Bible puts the family of God in a high position, at times even over blood family. And so we can't go out there and love a world that hates us if we can't even love the people that are supposed to have our backs. Are we messy? Yeah. Spend ten minutes with me, I'm messy. Ten minutes. I had dinner with the Sperry's last night. They found out I was messy. We are messy people, but we are redeemed by the grace of God. And our love for those outside begins with our love for those in the church. But even more, though, we have to remember that while we love the church, our love for people has to extend beyond it. Because while the Jews understood neighbor to be those within the community of faith, we have to remember... Jesus' call to love people extended beyond just the community of, of, of faith. Because remember, Jesus has already redefined neighbor at this point. Yeah, it means loving those within the community first, but it also means loving those outside. Because if you remember back in Matthew 5, which happened before Matthew 22, Jesus teaches, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And in this teaching, Jesus includes an enemy into the category of neighbor by saying you have to love them both. So not only are those in the family of faith your neighbor, but those outside of the family of faith are your neighbor, which means we love all of them, every person. But even going further... When Luke recounts this exact same interaction that Jesus is having with the Pharisee about what is the greatest command, immediately after Jesus gives the answer, as Luke records what Jesus does, Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. Y'all remember that? The Samaritan, the one who the Jews deemed outside of the community of faith, was held up as the epitome of a neighbor. And so what I'm trying to get at is this. We are called, who are we called to love? Our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Everyone. Everyone. We are to be marked, a people marked by a genuine and real love for people. Now here's a question we have to consider. What does this kind of love look like? What does a love for people look It's easy to say, I love everybody. But if I asked for the evidence, what would you offer up? If you asked me for the evidence, what would I offer up? What does it look like? Well, I think Paul gives us a helpful pattern to follow in terms of understanding what love should look like in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, where he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. What does love look like? It means putting others before yourself. And, and let's be honest. I don't, want, I don't want you to say I didn't give you all the facts. Loving like this will cost you something. I saw a clip this past week. It was shared by a pastor. I'm not going to tell you who the pastor is who shared it. I'm going to tell you who the pastor is who said it. Okay, But I saw a clip that was shared by a pastor of a pastor preaching a sermon. And this is basically the gist of what he said. He said, loving you shouldn't cause me harm. He said, caring for you. Shouldn't cost me my own well-being. And this is what he said. We need to think of ourselves too. We need to care about ourselves first and foremost. Now I agree in self-care. I think it's important. I, I think mental health is important. I was like, man, that's a good thought. The problem is it's just not in the Bible. It's just not in the Bible. Loving people will cost you something. It may cause you turmoil. It may cause you harm. It may cause you to struggle and wrestle, but it doesn't mean it's not worth it. And you're like, well, how do you know that it's supposed to cost me? Because it costs Jesus something. Loving people cost him. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who though he was existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. A servant of who? God and you. Taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus die? Because he loved the Father, and he loved you. That love cost him. I like this quote that Aaliyah shared with me this week from a guy named A.J. Sherrill. She overheard it on a podcast, and she she shared it with me. And I was like, it's perfect. I'm going to steal it. The guy said that love always begins where convenience ends. Love begins where convenience ends. You want to know if you really love God? Love Him when it's not convenient. You want to know if you really love people? Love them when it's not convenient. And if we are going to be a faithful body of believers, we have to love God first, and out of an overflow of that love, love those around us. Well, those inside the church and those outside the church. But as we close, let me offer you, this will be quick, just a Third and final point for your consideration. You're like, well, there's only two in the text: love God and love people. There there is, but let me let me throw this out there. Third thing I want you to see this morning. Don't waste an opportunity to love. And we see this in the entire interaction, verses 34 through 40. Because when you take this interaction with the Pharisees in its entirety, Jesus is modeling for us, not wasting an opportunity to love. Think about it. I kind of I set the stage at the beginning, I did that intentionally. Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees, even though he knows all the motives of the religious leaders. Back in verse 18, it says that perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Jesus knew what was going on. He knew that the the Sadducees were trying to trip him up with Rome. He knew that the Pharisees were trying to trip him up with the law. He knew that they did not care about what was right and true. They just wanted to see him fall. So why even engage with them? Why give them the time of day? Because for me, I'll be honest with you, if I know the only reason someone is trying to have a conversation with me is because they want to try to catch me slip up, they want to try to twist my words and make me out to be the bad guy, I'm not wasting my time. Man, but I'm not Jesus. And I need to be more like him. Why would Jesus engage with them? Two reasons. First, Jesus loved God. He loved God. Remember, Jesus knew what his purpose was. He came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That's his purpose. He loves God, the Father, by seeking and saving the lost. And he did this to bring glory to God. John 17, 4 through 6. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. He says, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Jesus engaged with the lost because God sent him for the purpose of redeeming the lost. And so Jesus is willing to engage with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious leaders because he loved God. But second, because he loved them. He loved people. He loved the Pharisees. He loved the Sadducees. He loved the chief scribes. He loved the religious leaders. But he also loved the crowd that was listening. Because don't forget, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-three, it said that when the crowds heard this, remember, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus' love toward the Pharisees Displayed toward the Pharisees, his teaching about the law was being heard by a lot of people. And Jesus loved all of them. And sometimes, hear me on this, sometimes, our displays of love toward a particular person won't bring about the desired result in that person. It won't bring about what we're hoping our love will bring about. Just call it like I see it. You're going to love some people in the church And fight tooth and nail for their goodness and their holiness and they're never going to love you back. It breaks my heart, but we're broken. You're going to love people outside of this church. You're going to try to invest in them and share the gospel with them and pour into them and be there in their mess. And they're never going to love you back and they're never going to love Jesus. But maybe, just maybe, God is using your love for someone else To change someone you're not even paying attention to. Because Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees. And the crowds are believing. Maybe God is using you to plant a seed in the life of someone who is watching. And you might not ever see that harvest come to fruition. But your faithfulness to God, your love for him and people will never be wasted. So let me draw this to a close. If any church, if this church is to be a church that lives like the church is meant to live, if we want to accomplish the task God has set before us, then this church has to be built on a strong foundation. And what that means is that each of us that make up the church, we have to be built on a proper foundation. And that foundation is one of love. A love for God because He has loved us and a love for people. Please hear me. We can program this thing to death. But if we don't have love, we can be the most aware of what those inside and outside the church need. But if we don't have love, we can buy a building, we can hold to all the right doctrines, we can contend for the truth. But if we don't have love, Love. We have nothing. And when our love wavers, we don't try to force ourselves back into it. We don't try to will ourselves to love more. We humbly go back to the place where we first saw love displayed. We go back to Calvary, and we see the Son of God hung high and stretched wide in love for us when we did not deserve it. We go back to the empty tomb and we remember that the life we now live, we live because Christ lives. We let God's love for us fuel our love for him and our love for one another. And when we love well, the foundation of our fellowship will be strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love us even though we are messy and we stumble and we fall and we make mistakes. Thank you that you love the church even though it is messy and it stumbles and it falls and it makes mistakes. Thank you, God, that in my weakest moments you have never given up on me. And God, I pray that we would have a love like that. That we would love you. And we don't have to worry about you failing us, God. We don't have to worry about you slipping up or letting us down because you are perfect in all of your ways. And so help us to rest in your love, but help us, God, to love people well, not because they're perfect and they're not messy, not because they don't struggle and, that, and not because they won't hurt us, God, but because you have loved us. Help us to love well. God, my, I plead with you that if anything would be said of New Breed Church, If anything would be said about us. It wouldn't be. About any of the pastors. It wouldn't be about. What people we have here. Wouldn't be about. How in tune we are. With what's going on in the world around us. If anything is to be said of Newbury. I pray that it would be that we are a people who love. That we love God. We love those in this body, and we love those outside of this body. Help us to be obedient, God, to all that you have called us to, because you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.